And you might like to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 1156. I know that last week I began by talking to you about a funeral I had taken, but uh, if you'll excuse me being morbid, I'm going to do the same again. Uh, This was a funeral that, that took place when I'd been a curate for almost exactly a year and I was asked to take the funeral of a lady who had died. Uh, There was no connection with the church, uh, but she and her husband had lived nearby in Northampton where we were, and so I went to visit him, the the husband. It turned out they'd been married for 47 years, uh, at which point uh, she had been diagnosed with cancer, and she was dead within six weeks. Uh, They were a couple who, according to the husband, had had no Christian background, and who had no Christian commitment or faith. Well, despite his obvious grief, the husband kept himself together when I visited him, and indeed throughout the funeral service and the burial on the day itself. But after the burial was over, as we were still standing by the graveside, uh, the rest of the family started to move a few paces away and he was still standing next to me and as he looked down at the coffin in the ground he started to break down and after a while he looked at me and said I guess now the only thing is to get on with life 47 years all gone in six weeks and that's that and this is a story I share with you to my shame because I froze couldn't think of what to say. I say I froze. My mind was racing. I knew I didn't want to give him false hope on the one hand about his wife, since as far as it's possible to know these things, she had died without placing her trust in Jesus. I knew that this was no time for a mini-sermon. And so I couldn't think of what to say. Oh, I said something. But I can't remember what it was, and I'm sure it was of no help to that man. I often think about that day. Sometimes I think about what I could have said or should have said. But I also think about it because of all the funerals that I've taken, that is the one where I think the power of death was plainest before my eyes. As it took a man, and in taking his wife left him empty, without help, without hope, without reason, without purpose, without joy, so that I was left without words. Have you seen death do that? Have you seen its power? It is terrible. Of course, some meet death with with platitudes, don't they? Death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away into the next room. I am I and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. Have you heard that poem? It's full of lies. Lies that just try to ignore death and its effects. To pretend that it is nothing when it is so powerful. If some meet death with platitudes, others meet it with stark realism. Like Richard Dawkins, who says that the cycle of life and death on this planet means that we are left with... No purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Of course, others don't know how to meet death. 
because they're not sure what, if anything, lies beyond. Is that you? François Rabelais, a Renaissance writer, said this, When I die, the worms will devour my body and I will commit myself to the great perhaps. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, there's no perhaps. It tells us that we can know. It tells us that death is powerful, a great enemy. But in verse 26, it is destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So turn with me again to this chapter. And in this final section that we read earlier on, we see how death has been swallowed up in victory. For this is a chapter about resurrection. A chapter which links the resurrection of Jesus to the resurrection we await if we are in Christ, trusting him. It's a chapter which compares the life we have now, the perishable bodies we have now, with the eternal life and glorious bodies we will have then. It's a chapter which compares the futility of faith if Jesus has not been raised with the certainty of hope we have because he is raised. And so it is a chapter that encourages us to stand firm, to not be moved. Do you remember that? It's at the beginning and end of the chapter, like bookends. And so in our passage today, verses 50 to 58, we're told, stand firm, because death, the great enemy, is defeated. So as we look together at these verses, we'll see first the great enemy and then second, the great victory. First then, the great enemy, death. Throughout this chapter, it seems to me that Paul just assumes that his readers will appreciate that death is the great enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed. And I'm sure that for some of us here today, we do not need to be convinced of that fact. It may be that you've been bereaved very recently and the pain is still raw every moment. It may be that you or someone close to you is facing death in the near future and so it hangs over your every thought and plan. Uh, you know what an enemy death is. You know what great a victory it would be to see it defeated. And yet I suspect that for others here, uh, death is the least of our worries. Oh, we wouldn't put it like that, but we certainly live like that. Siegfried Sassoon once wrote, At the age of 22, I believed myself to be inextinguishable. And it is true today, isn't it, that you can reach adulthood still untouched by death, not having seen it at close quarters. And whilst we might know that death is inevitable, it seems so distant that we get by without thinking about it. And so I think it'll be helpful for us to spend a little time dwelling on the power of death. Because only when we see how great our enemy is will we see how great is the victory that Jesus has won for us. So have you realised, have you seen death's power to attack our sense of meaning and purpose in life? For whilst death occurs at the end of life, it casts its shadow back to plunge everything into darkness. Why don't you turn with me to Ecclesiastes? It begins on page 668 
in the Bibles. We'll spend a little bit of time in its chapters. Ecclesiastes, if you don't know it, is a book in which the writer takes a look at what life would be like if this world was all that there is. A life without God and without hope. And what does he conclude about such a life? We'll have a look at chapter 1 and verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Or flick ahead to chapter 7 and verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. How can life have meaning if it ends in nothing? In death. The author Tolstoy spent much of his life in a search for meaning. And yet at one stage he wrote this, What meaning has my life? that the inevitability of death does not destroy. The fact that one day he and his whole family would be dust plunged him into despair. Woody Allen once said this, The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and death. It is absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. If death is all there is, if death is the end, then our few fleeting years will soon be forgotten. Before long, all trace of our impact will have gone, any difference our lives have made, undetectable. And so in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 15, we read this. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Death has power over meaning and purpose. It shows that our efforts count for nothing. And our lives will be forgotten. That leads on to the next thing, which is that death attacks our hope. Have a look at... Uh, Chapter 9, verse 4 in Ecclesiastes. Great verse, this. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. If death is the end, there's no hope. That's the point. Or at least you can only have hopes for the few years we have left. And it doesn't matter how great you are, you can have conquered the world, you can have earned your fortune. The moment you are dead, it is gone. And the poorest person alive is better off than you. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. And so hope gets diminished by degrees the older we get. Because the older we get, the sooner our death, the less time we have, the less we can do, the fewer dreams can be fulfilled. Death has power over hope. It's what we see in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. You can turn back to it now, page 1156. Have a look at verse 19. If for only this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 
Death's power attacks our meaning, our purpose, our hope. It even attacks our bodies. That's a big theme in this chapter. It describes us the way we are today as perishable, mortal, dishonourable, weak. As death takes its toll on our physical bodies even while we are still alive. The aches and pains, the sickness and disease, the slow deterioration. To say nothing of the endemic corruption and sin. So that in verse 50 it says, I declare to you brothers that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This makes us unsuitable for God's presence, for being part of God's kingdom. Not only do we need death's power to be defeated, but we need our bodies to be changed. Do you see then this great enemy? Do you see its power? Power that attacks meaning and purpose and hope, our physical being even, and renders us unfit for God's kingdom. Our great enemy. And how has it become our enemy? How is it that we're under its power? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In the animal world, if you're a predator, and if you have a sting, then you use your sting not to inflict pain on other animals for the sake of it, Uh, but rather to bring them under your power. Your sting paralyzes their muscles and leaves them lying utterly defenseless before you. Uh, For them, it's not your sting that they need worry about. It's the fact that after you sting them, you're going to eat them. So, for instance, and, and see if you can guess which member of staff told me about this, Uh, There are snakes uh, on a continent other than this uh, whose venom is so strong and whose jaws so malleable that they can paralyse and then eat whole an adult kangaroo. I take it you guessed. Well, for us, it is our sin that leaves us lying defenceless at the mercy of death. And yet death has no mercy. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Do you realise that about the law? I've met so many people who think that the law in the Bible is there so that Christians can be good people. But no, the law isn't the power of the Christian enabling him or her to live for God. No, the law is the power of sin. Because when we sin, it is the law that pronounces our condemnation and judgment. It is the law that by setting God's standards clearly for all to see, exposes us for the sinners we are and brings judgment. And what is the judgment? Well, what was the first judgment? Genesis 2. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. It's death. I wonder if sometimes we over-spiritualise the way we talk about judgement against sin. If we talk of it only in terms of our relationship with God being broken. Oh, it is broken. It is smashed. But what does that mean in practice? 
What does it mean to the person who never thought they had a relationship with God anyway? The Bible's primary way to talk about judgment, it seems to me, is to talk about death. So much so that the eternal judgment when Jesus returns is referred to as the second death. Well, we are under God's judgment because of sin. That judgment means death, and death is a great enemy. Because its power leaves us without meaning, without purpose, without hope, without help, without strength, without joy, without God forever. A great enemy indeed. But Christ has won a great victory. Death is defeated. And so this chapter ends in triumph. Have a look at verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A great enemy, yes, but a great victory. Note that it is a victory in two stages. And we're in the middle of the two. So on the one hand, Paul can almost taunt death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And yet at the same time in verse 54, we won't be able to say that death has been swallowed up in victory until the Lord Jesus returns. And our resurrection takes place. It's the same as with many other things, I suppose. We're part of God's kingdom begun. But we still await being part of God's kingdom complete. It means that Christians will still face death. But we will still mourn and grieve. And yet we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We need not fear death because it has been defeated and we will long for Jesus' return because then death will be defeated completely. It's a wonderful picture in Revelation 21, isn't it? Where death is thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire which is the second death. Death will die so that for us there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. Yes, this great victory is staged. Two parts. Next, it is a victory given to us by Jesus. I guess that's obvious, isn't it? But it is wonderful nonetheless. For the victory Jesus gives us comes through his own death and then resurrection. For Jesus has taken the sting of death onto himself. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And so in taking our sin onto himself, Jesus was left paralysed at the mercy of death. So that in Hebrews 2, he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? They are on Jesus. 
dying on the cross. He tasted death for you and I. A death that cast its shadow back over his life so that he sweat blood in fear of it. So that he came to earth specifically to head towards it. And yet death's victory was short-lived because Christ is risen. Romans 6 says this, We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so we are free. Free from death, free from the fear of death. Free from the effects of death one day. And instead given life, eternal life, life in all its fullness. Jesus is stronger than death's power. So that where death is a sign of judgment, Jesus gives us forgiveness. Our sins taken away from us as far as can be so that God will not remember them. Where death attacks our hope, Jesus brings sure and certain hope. Because in his, <coughs> in his resurrection, we have seen our future. And so we can endure anything today because we strain towards what is ahead and press on toward our goal. And where death attacks our meaning and purpose, Jesus brings meaning as we become God's children and part of his family. He gives purpose as he involves us in the work of his kingdom. And as he gives us resurrection life, which is the true purpose for which God made us. And where death attacks our bodies, causing weakness and corruption, when Jesus returns, we will be changed. See that in verse 51? Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Those glorious resurrection bodies that we looked at last time, ours in an instant. Death will not have its way. Indeed, some will escape it altogether. Do you notice that in verse 51? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. There will be millions, hundreds of millions of Christians alive when Jesus returns. Somewhere, there will be a Christian who has given their life to Christ in just the last few seconds of this creation. Have you ever thought about that? What rejoicing in heaven there will be over that one. Death is a great enemy, it's true. But Jesus is greater. And he gives us his great victory. And so therefore, verse 58, stand firm. Let nothing move you. If you are a Christian here today, let nothing move you. For victory is assured. A victory that is wonderful beyond our imagination against an enemy that is strong beyond our control. So stand firm and work. That's what it says, isn't it? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It will be tough. 
It will be tough to keep going, tough to stand firm, tough to keep serving the Lord above all, tough to keep serving others above yourself. It will be work and labour, but it is not in vain because we are part of God's kingdom, a kingdom that has already begun and that one day will be completed, a kingdom that brings with it meaning and purpose and hope into our lives now and which leads us on towards that day when God will make everything new and where he will make his dwelling with us. Let's pray together.